Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, which covers the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive health startups and leaders. So you are listening to one of our first 20 episodes. So first of all, thank you so much for listening. As you can imagine with the podcast, they get more and more popular, which ours certainly did after episode 20. So we started giving proper introductions, long introductions, and we upgraded our equipment and everything like that. So that's why you're hearing from me now, because we're putting this at the start of every one of those first 20 episodes. So I am your host. My name is James Someru. I'm an anesthetics and intensive care doctor by background. So I practiced for five years. I did loads of different jobs in policy and leadership within the UK NHS. I've run two different health tech accelerators to help startups grow, access different markets in the UK and abroad. And now I'm a co-founder of HS and we build, scale and invest in the best health tech startups. So if you want to get in touch with us, then head on over to the description of this podcast. In there, you will find all of the links to our social media, website, emails, etc. So click on those, follow us, let us know what you think of the podcast and feel free to suggest any guests. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Connect with us. Let us know what you think. Welcome to this week's episode of the HS Podcast. Uh, my name's James, one of the founders of HS, and this week I am joined by Charlie Regis, who's the founder of Stylist Tech, which is a tech development company that won loads of awards, and what they do is they design web and mobile apps for companies. Um, I met Charlie first a couple of years ago because one of the corporates that we both work with is RGA, which is the Reinsurance Group of America, and Charlie and I have now done quite a lot of work together on some of our HS cohort companies, helping them design and develop some of their health tech MVPs and products. So, Charlie, welcome. How are you doing? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm good. I'm good. Feeling refreshed after after the Christmas break. So ready to get going. Excellent. What did you get up to? I took it easy, to be honest. This, uh, this startup game is quite intense. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. So, good for you. Yeah, I took a, a proper time out, which is the first time in a while, which is nice. Excellent. So, Charlie, you've got a really interesting story that, that I guess starts starts in, in sport and in elite sport all the way up to being a startup founder. So for our listeners, why don't you tell us your story? OK, cool. Um, so my story, I guess, started um, when I was like four or five. I got really into tennis. Um, tennis was my thing and it was something that I had a, a bit of a talent for. Um, and became sort of a pivotal part of my life going through sort of junior professional tennis from the age of 10 or 11 where sort of really trying to balance this lifestyle of academia and sport you know particularly in tennis where trying to balance both is difficult and a lot of people choose to focus on tennis I was always very much pushed towards you know trying to juggle both um, which has had you know lessons that have transferred through to um, playing on the pro tour and also into the into the startup game as well um, and things really got intense for me when after a levels um, I decided to go full-time I went on the pro tour for about 18 months um, where I got to travel Europe I got to travel um, through the U.S. competing on sort of the low levels of the professional tour which is less glamorous than it sounds like it's a it's a <laughs> really intense environment you know it's something where for me, one of the biggest learnings I took from it 
was the need to be extremely reflective when you're a tennis player. You know, not everybody can afford to have a coach that travels with them 50 weeks a year. I think I, I spent like 40 or 42 weeks on the road that year. Wow. And um, you have to have this balance between being very critical of your performance and where you need to improve and what you could have done better. But then also when you step onto the court in that competitive arena, have a really secure sense of confidence in what you're able to bring to the table and execute at a high level. And I think that transfers really interestingly into this startup space because yes, you have advisors and you have people that give you nuggets of wisdom, but really you're trying to figure this, this thing out on your own, mm. you know? So this reflective process of analyzing what you're doing and how you're doing it is very important, but then being able to sit down in a meeting or a pitch and have this really low key underlying level of confidence um, that is absolutely necessary if you're trying to get someone to buy into your vision and your, and your mission. Um, that's just something that's been really interesting. So I played on the Pro Tour for 18 months and realized that I wasn't going to be the next Roger Federer, you know? Um, there's probably a hundred people in the world, men and women, that make a good living out of tennis. Everybody else is really grinding, trying to make a profit. And I was sort of looking around, I think I was 20 at the time, 1920, looking around and seeing 27, 28 year olds doing the same grind, the same hustle I was. And these guys were elite, you know, and they and they were playing these same three week tournaments in Uzbekistan and in outrageous heat in the summer and ice cold conditions in Croatia in the winter. And it's, it's a lonely life. It's a tough life. And I was like, is this where I want to invest my future really? And I decided that it wasn't. So after playing on the pro tour, my options of America um, were out of the question. You can't have played professional level sport if you're going to go to America and have the scholarships and the education out there. So Europe was really my option. And I ended up going to Loughborough, um, where I actually met the co-founder of Stylif. He was my inter Stylif, um, Lucas Pullman, who was my doubles partner at Loughborough. And we sort of we had good success throughout our years at Loughborough. We won the European Championships. We'd lived together for a couple of years. And that was really the, the birth of this relationship that's now seen us become sort of partners in life in this entrepreneur space as well. Um, so after Loughborough, I was a sports agent with a company called Bastion um, for a year, in and around a year. Um, they were an Australian agency that came over to the UK um, to set up shop. And I thought this would be an amazing learning experience, you know, rather than going to an IMG where you're sort of a big part of a, a sorry, a small part of a big machine and you have sort of a limited access to opportunities and just the learning curve was going to be much narrower than this new agency that where I was sitting next to the CEO every day, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I chose Bastion and I was with Bastion for about a year. And about a year in, my stylist journey started to become interesting because my doubles partner, Lucas, had for about a year been working on this project with the founder of Stylif, who's a guy called Gregor Trobek, who is a, an unbelievable technical talent from Slovenia. Um, there's a really interesting story as to how Lucas met him, but we probably don't have time for that here. Um, but 
he uh, he gave me a call and sort of I'd known about everything that was going on, but this was a different kind of call. He had a different kind of energy in his voice on this on this call. And he was like, we've landed on an absolute nugget of gold. And what it was, they were in uh, Silicon Valley on the ABC accelerator program um, where they were building clothing to health risk technology for the insurance industry. So for big corporations um, in America in particular, they have very little data when they are quantifying and pricing the risk of a company. They use, they use age, gender, and postcode, which basically gives you a very top line indication of how, how healthy someone might be. And the technology they were building was to do with uniforms. So for big employers like a Lidl or a Tesco's, where you have a whole bunch of staff in uniform, they could identify the obesity levels of the entire uniformed workforce just through using um, some very clever machine learning and bits of data that we could get from the uniform suppliers. And um, he gave me this call, it's like, we need somebody that can come and tell the story and get people inspired about what we're doing. They're sort of hitting a lot of barriers out in Silicon Valley. It's a tough environment in Silicon Valley. It's like, it's like nowhere else in the world. There's such an abundance of outrageous talent that you just get lost in this sea of startups that just churns. 24 7 you know there's so many accelerators out there where if you're not in a really high-end established accelerator it's very difficult for them to open doors for you so we were on the abc accelerator which was based in slovenia germany and they have one more base in europe and they were basically taking the top 10 from europe out and setting up this home in in silicon valley and we were sort of part of that first cohort that went out there. So whilst they were able to help us out in a number of ways, they brought little to us, which was for our first major client. Um, they didn't have the, the reputation in that space to really open doors that could completely change the game for us in that space. So we had to do a lot of it by ourselves. And uh, I got this call from Lucas, like we need somebody that can come and just light a fire in someone's belly about what we're doing. And he, he was basically offering me the opportunity and he said, if you can raise X amount of money, then you can come out and you can be a co-founder of this company and, and we can come on this adventure with us. And I think I was 22 at the time, 22, yeah, 21, 22. And it just sounded like an adventure that I couldn't turn down, you know, mm -hmm. it was, uh, it got me motivated. And I think something that I've sort of been reflecting on in the last sort of year or so, whilst yes, I was enjoying this life of being a sports agent, there's something in sport where, particularly in tennis, where you spend so much of your life in this bouncing back and forth between emotional extremes. If you ever go to a, a mm. junior tennis tournament, you'll see kids breaking rackets on the ground, you'll see kids' souls erupting when they hit a backhand winner mm. to, to, to break serve or to win a set. But I've spent my life bouncing between these two emotional extremes and this nine to five grind of this sports agency that I was working in <laughs> wasn't giving me that same drive when I woke up. And this startup life of having extremes at either ends of the scale, I mean, it's not as instant as in, as in sport, as in these finite moments, but 
in the big picture, the extremes of, you know, really serious freedom if this thing plays out or the stress of your dreams falling away, like those types of possibilities really get me going. And that's what gets me motivated and working through through serious hours and through tough times, you know. That is so, um, that, that is so interesting. I mean, that, that kind of emotional extreme thing where people when they explain it, they sort of draw the line in midair, don't they? And they just wave their hand up and down wildly. And they're like, this is what it's like to be in a startup every year, every month, every week, every day, every hour. Sometimes you're, you're fluctuating. People often describe it as, you know, one of the negatives of, of being in the startup world. But that's really interesting. Obviously, you've experienced that as a sportsman. And it's something that you really enjoyed and thrived in because it obviously therefore made you a successful sportsman. And actually, it brings you into the startup world too. Yeah, I think it's um, it's necessary for me to get the best out of myself, you know. Mm. Um, I think if you haven't experienced a life where you're intensely motivated on a daily basis, it's hard to know really what gets you there. But sort of as an athlete and sort of waking up with dreams of winning Wimbledon from the age of 10, you know, whether that was realistic or not, you know, that was, that was where my mindset was at. Um, having that hunger you know finding something that is in a different domain is such a gift that that sort of gives me that drive um and lucas is very much the same way you know he's lived a similar truth to me in that he's lived this life of highly ambitious athletic pursuits Mm. um that have then you know transferred into into a business space um it's really interesting so yes i mean so one of my friends from medical school actually a guy called Robbie Lloyd he was a top level tennis junior as well you probably know you might have played him but he's Mm. he's now he's now a doctor he's a public speaker he's got a podcast called Ponder Med um, and he does this amazing talk on on mental toughness that he's delivered all around the world and he talks about being an A&E in South Africa and and him being really overwhelmed because he was quite literally helicoptered into loads of stabbings and shootings and things that we just don't really deal with in the UK and yeah. he said one of the reasons he got through it was was so much that he learned through top level tennis in in the, mm. the resilience, the work ethic, the dedication, the focus, even things like overcoming failure and things like that. He's, you know, he built that up as an athlete, which he took into being a doctor and now into business as well. I mean, do you think the traits that that took you to top level tennis of of helped you being being an entrepreneur? Do you think you were always going to be an entrepreneur because of those? I think there's two, I mean, there are a plethora of things, but there are two key things I can highlight and that I've sort of reflected on over the last sort of couple of years. Um, The first one being, and this applies to all sport, but in particular tennis. In tennis, unless you're Roger Federer, once you get to a certain level, you lose every week. It might be in the second round, it might be in the quarterfinal. if If you have a good year, I probably won three tournaments, four tournaments that year. Once mm. you get to a certain level, you're competing at a high level and you're not winning many tournaments. And if you are, then you're going up to the next level of tournaments where it's even tougher and you're not winning those tournaments, you know, unless you are absolutely the cream of the crop. Murray might win four tournaments a year, mm. you know. Um, so the fact that I'm so used to losing and and bouncing back and not being affected by that, I mm. think is such a huge trait in this startup game. Cause you'll make, say, say you make 50 cold calls in a day and one of them is a lukewarm lead that you come out of that. 
you know i feel good about walking away with that day you know getting turned down 49 times or 50 times out of 50 is it doesn't really bother me mm. you know or if i go into a meeting and someone says it's not for me like i'm fine cool mm. like it's it's not an issue i've dealt with this since i was 10 years old you know mm. um i think that has been absolutely instrumental um it's an interesting in comparison this... isn't it because he you know federer will lose in the Wimbledon final or the Australian Open final, and he'll he'll lose right until the end of his career. But exactly, you know, he's still considered the greatest of all time, and and his even his daily, weekly, monthly sporting life is plagued with failure. Which, yeah, it's an interesting comparison to the startup game. Yeah, um, it is. It is, and I think it's it just builds toughness. It's a different kind of toughness, you know. Mm. Um, it's a it's a durability of rejection and failure that is not easy to come by. Mm. Um, and I think it's definitely been, you know, one of our, our traits that's seen us, you know, just stick through tough times in general. It seems, general ingrained, as a, as it seems a company. ingrained in you guys, the sportsman as well. Like, I, m- I remember Robbie talking to me about it and he said he was faced with one patient in South Africa with multiple traumatic injuries Mm. And he was on his own and he'd not dealt with anything like that before. And he was starting to feel himself getting overwhelmed. And he was starting to mm-hmm. feel himself freezing up. And he said he likened it, as silly as it may sound to some of the listeners, but I'm sure you didn't this time. He likened it to being for, like love 40 down in a must win game. And he said oh. it was a similar sort of process where he told himself, you can do this. You have the skills to do this one step at a time. Get your first serve in you know, play the tactics that you've, that you've told yourself. And he just coached himself through it in a, in a really similar way to he coached himself through the sport. Yeah, I think, and that's a really interesting point that he's made there. And I think there's, there, there's another moment um, for me as well, in tennis in particular, um, that translates into this space. And it's that when you, whenever you play a tennis match, you see it at Wimbledon, you see it, um, sort of at lower level tournaments as well. Before the match gets going, you have a bit of a knock up, right? They sort mm. of walk onto court, they tuck their bags down. Sometimes they're still in their warm up gear and they'll have five minutes where they'll hit some from the back, do some volleys and then, you know, roll some serves in. And then you walk back to your, to your chair. You might change a racket, you might redo your shoes, you take off um, any bits of extra kit that you've got and you walk to the back of the court and you're about to go to war like mm. tennis is a very gladiatorial gladiatorial sport you know it's you against somebody else and you're going to be out here for two and a half hours and you're going to have to dig deep you know it's never an easy ride as soon as you feel like it's an easy ride a couple games slip by and all of a sudden you're in a situation mm. um and the heart starts going you know and your breathing starts to change and being able to just be comfortable in physical distress you know and being able to manage that situation at the very least manage it and at the you know in the best case scenario being able to thrive in it and stepping back to that baseline sort of picking up the balls getting ready to serve and being able to be clear just mentally clear in that moment is identical to stepping onto a stage and pitching in front of 400 people Mm. you know I've pitched all over the world with sort of our own venture in style of tech and I'm pitched in Dubai and Paris and London. And it's exactly the same mental process that I, that I take of being able to manipulate my physical and mental state of mind and sort of having a three second 
moment of total silence mentally before I execute mm. the serve or I execute the pitch, you know? Mm. People will say the first 10 seconds of a pitch is the toughest 10 seconds. Um, and I believe like, you know, getting the first serve of the first point in is one of the <laughs> toughest points in tennis because it's when your body is having the most severe reaction to whatever's going through it, the adrenaline, the nerves, the, the whatever it might be, the doubt. Um, and you have to exert that same aura of confidence mm. as you do on stage. And you can't look and feel scared on that stage. You can't look and feel scared when you're looking down the court at your opponent. You know, this is yeah. the same energy that you have to bring to that moment. And just having done that religiously throughout my life, I think is one of the reasons why I enjoy pitching so much. And I really look forward to big pitches. If I've prepared right, and it's all about preparation. I don't think people prepare like an athlete for these moments. And I think that's why I'm able to execute at a high level. Mm. It's severe, severe preparation. If I have a big pitch um, any time of day or, or the next day, I'll probably be up until 11.30 just running it, mm. just running it and running it and running it because there's a just a relationship between preparation and success that you, that you build as an, as an athlete, mm. you know? Um, and... I think that's that's why I enjoy the process of pitching. Dude, I could talk to you all day about tennis and, and sport and stuff, but <laughs> yeah. we should probably move on to some tech, right? Let's do it. Uh, <laughs> so, Stylus. Um, Stylus. I'm just going to say, you know, every, every podcast, almost every podcast we, we've run, the phrase user-centered design has come up. Everything that that we that we do every startup that we've spoken to ultimately ultimately boils down to the fact that things have to be designed around the users. And I'm sure it's stylish. Mm -hmm. You know, I've seen you guys work with some of our cohort, you know, becomes a big point. I just want to, I just want you to sort of talk about it from, from your perspective, kind of mm -hmm. um, what do you see user-centered design as how important do you sure. think it is and what's your process for doing it at stylish? Yeah. So at Stylif, we're very lucky in the fact that our founder, Gregor, is uh, a seriously special talent when it comes to user experience um, and user design. Um, and all my learnings really have come through watching him work, watching the way he interacts with clients and sort of how he approaches projects. Um, there's a real value exchange that needs to take place. You know, the vast majority of apps really when it comes down to it, are looking for a data play. They're looking to gain bits of information that are valuable to X, Y, and Z for whatever reasons. And the focus for Gregor is, and it, for a lot of clients, it's difficult to really focus on this, is if your customer is not going to use your app and get value from your app, then the data is, is a myth, you know? You can try and collect the most valuable data in the world, but if people are not using your app, then you have nothing. Mm. So your primary focus should be on bringing as much value to the customer as possible. And then if you are able to get valuable insights from that, which you can then monetize in a number of ways, or you can you know, improve your product through these insights, then that is you know, uh, not a bonus, but it's a secondary priority um, compared to you know, the experience of the user. Mm. Now, the experience of the user needs to be as mind-numbingly simple 
as possible. <laughs> um, and that is difficult and it's complicated. Yeah, like we heard last an... week actually from one of our, from our guests last week, Jonathan from Perfect Ward, he said that mm. he prides himself on the, on the simplicity, but the amount of complexity that goes into making things simple yeah. is unbelievable. Yeah, it's, um, it's a very, it's a, it's a serious skill set that isn't learned overnight. You know, this is something that takes years of experience to understand intuitively how people are going to approach a page and navigate it and then being able to structure the UX of an app through the mindset of a, of a basic user. I think techies have a way of approaching um, tech because they're so competent in this space. It seems simple and it feels simple. You know, I try to encourage people to say, if you put this in front of your mom or your dad, who might be 50, 60, or not so much grandparents because they're kind of out of this scene, but the mum or dad who, you know, really struggle to use Facebook or like emails are, are just about on the cards on, on an iPhone. You know, if they can navigate it, you're on the right track. Um, if you look at some of the, the best apps in the world, Spotify is unbelievably simple. You know, it's, it's mm -hmm. intuitive. It, it speaks to you in a way that it's almost impossible to mess up. Um, and that is, is what you should be aiming for, you know? Um, and whether that mm -hmm. comes down to, you know, hours and hours of wireframing where you show people and you sort of A and B test wireframes before you start building anything, um, or you work with experts to try and help you bring this thing to life in a way that can be seamless and provide value to the user, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you guys designed web and yes. mobile apps for, you know, a range of different people, um, a range of different companies at a range of different mm -hmm. stages. Do you want to just talk us through your process? So for people that might want something developed, whether that's an MVP stage or, or if indeed you work with people at the later stage, do you want to just walk us through your process of what you do for um, your clients? Sure, absolutely. Um, first off, I think... When you're working with, we work with a lot of first time founders and we work with Fortune 500 companies like Lidl and the Reinsurance Group of America, like we touched on earlier. Um, for a first, it's, it's really a collaboration. Um, I think when I made the connection of, you know, we're not so much selling a development resource. It's more about, you know, let's go on this journey together and help you bring it to life. Because mm. a lot of people who don't have the technical expertise don't understand the, the technical process to bring something to life. So it's really us coming in and trying to create this thing together. Um, so the first thing that we will do is we'll work with a founder to create a, a spec so, or a specification, which is basically, you know, what do you want this app to do? Like at a really granular level, how would you like this thing to work? How do you, how do you want it to look? Um, and a lot of founders don't have a good understanding of, of what they want it to do. You know, they have a, a business understanding mm. of, I want it to do X, Y, and Z so that it can transform an industry. Okay, that's, that's a fantastic end goal, end game. But functionally, what does this need to do to make that become a reality? And that's really the first bridge that we cross with founders is that, you know, breaking down this vision that they have into um, user stories, essentially. Mm. Um, sort of anybody that's used to uh, sort of this space in general is to try and break every feature down 
into you know as a user i want to be able to search locations you know mm. it's very basic stuff um and what we have is we break that down into must-haves nice to haves and then you know in an ideal world it would be great if we could have as well um so usually we start off with an mvp which is the absolute fundamentals of what this thing needs to do um so with an mvp the first stage is design so we'd get on a call with our design team it might be with gregor who's our lead designer or it might be with one of our um, junior designers as well or maybe both actually at this point in the game mm. where we just get a taste for the look and feel of, of what you want this thing to do you know this is not about us going away and designing an app that you really don't have much of an influence on it's about bringing your vision to life you know mm. this is something that people might be raising investment from friends and family from or digging into savings that they send their kids to school with or selling their house for you know this is the thing that they are wanting to change the trajectory of their future for you know this has to be their baby um and it's about bringing that to life rather than us you know going and painting a picture that has half an hour worth of a phone call on um so the design phase is first and then we go about building it in sprint so we use agile methodology which means that we build um, in two week sprints and we charge by two week sprints. Mm. So um, we break it down. It keeps it very flexible for the for the founders so that they can't they're not tied down to a four month build and a, a huge budgets necessary. You know, we try and make it as digestible as possible. Um, and we might knock out two or three sprints back to back so that you have this this fundamental MVP minimum viable product that you can then go into the market and raise investment. You know, any startup founder in this space that wants to build an app that's going to you know change the game in some way or another usually to raise investment you're going to need to show something at the very least it needs to be designed you know you can't go in with a pitch deck and expect people to throw money at it um, you have to have something tangible that they can feel that they can taste even if you've built an mvp and then have designs for the rest of the app of here's what it's going to do once we've raised this money you know mm. you need something um, and that's where I think because we're very much in this space of, of, you know, launching our own venture as well, I should say style of tech, um, builds and launches their in-house ventures, as well as working with a limited number of external companies every year. We probably work with 20 to 25 companies a year to fund our own in-house venture active, which we'll touch on in a bit. Um, so we're living that same truth. You know, we're, we're entrepreneurs at heart, you know, we're not a traditional agency. Mm who are just trying to crack out as many projects as possible and trying to um, make as much profit as possible. You know, we putting these profits into our own stuff. Yeah. The thing, the thing that stands out for me there, Charlie, is, is your emphasis on really being involved in the vision. As you say, you're not just flogging a service. It seems that as part of what you actually want to do, and perhaps that is because, you know, you're all entrepreneurs at heart that you want to help people more holistically, is that you really get involved in the vision and actually want to understand I guess you, you might call it brand, you might call it personality, depending on if it's an individual or company. But yeah, that seems like an interesting component. Yeah, absolutely. I think the fact that our agency was born um, out of a slightly untraditional circumstance, I think we have a, a very different perspective. Um, the way, so the way Style of Tech came about was this product, the, the Silicon Valley product I touched on earlier, um, this insurance product, was it looked like it was going to do really well um, for a period of time. We won the, the Reinsurance Group of America Innovation Competition, which ran throughout Europe, the Middle East and Africa. 
and um, we're working quite closely with them, which, you know, for young founders, we're thinking that this is it. You know, we've, we've cracked out the wind. They're really interested. Mm. They're huge players in this space. And they sent us out globally to every territory they work in to basically say, you know, are we going to invest in this company and, and you know, integrate their tech into what we do? Um, and sort of, you know, six months later working with them, the answer was basically no. There was about 500 million people that wore uniforms every day. And that wasn't enough of a market to integrate this new metric we were bringing into the, the way they understand risk. Mm. So um, we basically had to buy time. This is a few years ago now. We had to buy some time. Otherwise, our runway was going to run out and mm. it was it was going to be game over. Um, and that's when we started to collaborate with other startups, other major companies um, to try and help bring their vision to life so that we could extend our runway and buy ourselves time to go again um, with our own in-house venture. And I think the fact that we've lived the truth of being, you know, completely one, one product focused entrepreneurs and now sort of understand the process of trying to bring something to life and break it into a market and scale you know um having lived that truth so recently i think that we just have a different perspective when working with founders the very first thing that you mentioned when when you talked about lessons that you learned from being an athlete the first the very first thing you said was was reflection Mm. and it sounds like you know in that situation where you know you need to raise your own funds again you've you've got something which you could sell you know you could pivot you know you, you you've used that ability to reflect be honest with yourself and actually develop the business model that has led to where you are now which is super interesting yeah i think it was um it was a hard reality to come to i think the one of the biggest lessons that i would take away from this is you really have to listen to what the market is telling you yeah it's very easy to and i mean look you have to believe in your product like no one is going to believe in your product before you do and you have to like really wholeheartedly believe this is going to be absolutely game-changing but if the market is telling you no you have to have the humility and the the just the the openness to to listen and you know try and make the necessary adjustments to to survive and whether it's by time or find a different way that the tech can be utilized or you know think about a different market that might be they might bring value to like you have to be able to understand that it's a no and it's it's a brutal brutal process like i remember i got the news on a beach both me and lucas um my co-founder were on vacation in marbella and we were waiting for this news we knew it was coming at some point in in that week mm-hmm. um but we didn't know so we had like a we had an email like the day before we got the bad news we had an email that suggested it would be good news it was like australia fancy it and we're like wicked so we were drinking wine on the beach having a great time <laughs> and this email comes through basically saying no and it was just a numbness mm. you know because we'd had our hopes riding on this and um it was our breakthrough moment this is what we thought was gonna you know change mm. the trajectory of our future and it was a no and it took maybe three or four weeks to really accept it and you know understand and that an adjustment needed to be made point, right yeah yeah we had like four months left mm. four months runway left. and anybody will tell you insurance is slow you know so mm. we we thought about utilizing the tech in a different way for school uniforms where we could highlight the obesity level of the entire 
um, student population in the UK, which would have knock-on effect for the government and the way that they're approaching this huge obesity challenge. Mm. Um, but the government just wouldn't play ball um, with the getting it into schools. Like all we needed was the uniform order sheet. This was the, the tech was so cool. We could, with a uniform order sheet, calculate BMI and waist to height ratio with 85% accuracy, um, nice. which was unbelievable. And it just, we just couldn't find the product market fit. Mm. Um, and we had to park it. Mm. And, and essentially by time, by creating style of tech. Um, and we were very lucky that we'd had, uh, we'd worked with Lidl and we'd worked with RGA. So we had some foundations to go to clients and say, look, we're an innovative team. Mm. And you, you essentially have access to talent that you wouldn't get access to otherwise. You know, it's very rare that premium, premium talent is available in an agency, you know, because mm. they're trying to change the world with their own unicorn. Mm. Um, you know, agencies have a, a certain, certain level of talent or either running your own agency. But if you're just working for a standard London studio, you, you know, the best talent isn't found in these places. And, you know, that's that was our sales pitch early on with relatively little portfolio to demonstrate it um and luckily a few projects came in and then you know once the ball started rolling our, our work spoke for itself yeah I, I i love that story about listening to the market and pivoting because one of the things that you mentioned there about being humble and and taking the time to reflect in real and, and realize that the reality of the situation is something that I guess in health, we fight against a lot. And you'll have seen this perhaps with the founders that you've worked with in health tech from HS or beyond that mm. you find in health, people are so passionate because yeah. often the founders are clinical or they've had a, a family member go through it, something to do with their health. It's, it's often very close to their heart for one reason or another. And they're so passionate about the solution that they genuinely believe will revolutionize an industry that they perhaps go on a little bit longer sometimes than they should do without that realization because still they're so yeah. passionate that what they want to do is, is is has that potential to change everything and i think for the the founders listening that are trying to find their product market fit i i'd really encourage you to to listen to what charlie's just said because listening to the market understanding and being and being really honest with yourself about the reality of the situation you're in is so important because if you are going to use your products to make change in the future you do have to move around to fit to the market that is exactly what product market fit is about yeah no i completely agree and it's when i when i speak to investors um you know we we raised um for the insurance product and um you know we're in discussions about raising now for for our own in-house venture active um the amount of time you speak to an investor and yes they pay attention to the product but what they really, really looking at is the team. Mm. You know, the amount of times that successful teams have hit the jackpot on their fourth product or their second or third attempt at a different market, you know, um, is is beyond belief. You know, it's it's very I don't want to say rare, but it's so common for a, a startup to from year one to maybe year two or year three to be working on something completely different, you mm. know. And that's the sign. If you manage to last three years or two years mm. without actually having a, a product pop in a market, that is really encouraging for me because mm. one, it shows me that you're not going to quit at the first sign of, of failure. And, you know, a lot of these 
people, the talent in startups is, is really high level talent. So you could go work for a company and earn a big check, you know, but you're choosing to live this bootstrap lifestyle where your quality of life is probably not that great, um, but you're believing in the dream and you're willing to, to stick it out and, and really go for it. You know, mm. that's a huge positive for me. And mm. the third one is that somehow you're managing to, to extend the runway, whether that's through, you know, keeping raising from investment from your existing investment network, or you've managed to raise for a second product, whatever that might be, you know, people are believing in what you're doing. Um, that is again, really encouraging. Mm. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever feel like you failed because the product market fit wasn't there. Like it's very difficult to know if the product market fit's going to be there from sitting behind the laptop and doing research, you know, mm. it's like, it, you can't really tell. So you have to roll the dice sometimes and put it out there and, and be willing to fail. Something that actually somebody told me um, the other day, and I can't remember if this stat is going to be on the money, but it's in and around it, is that Virgin, sort of Richard Branson's Virgin, has 60 active Virgin brands, right? Whether it's Virgin, <laughs> Virgin Active, yeah. Virgin Money, whatever it might yeah. be. There have been 400 Virgin brands. Wow. Right? So how many times has he failed or the Virgin um, brand failed mm. for there to be these 60 successes, you know? Any founder that has said they haven't failed is a liar. Mm. Um, and it's just about understanding that and not feeling disheartened by that, but having the, the courage to, to stick it out and, and keep going and keep trying and keep waking up and, and feeling like, you know, maybe it's not good enough, but mm. I'm going to throw the, the sink at it anyway, you know? Yeah. You know, one of my favorite books is um, How Google Works. I don't know if you've read it, you know, about the work, inner workings of the company um, and how they how they built it up and the principles. And they talk a lot about the failures in there. And, you know, even a company as big as Google and, and you've mm. seen recently about Google Plus and all these different things, you know, failures inherent. Um, but dude, let's let's quickly talk about active. Yeah. Um, I guess like most entrepreneurs, uh, there's always something else going on, isn't there? There's always something else always. that you're doing. You can't really sit still. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so where, where are you at with it now? Tell us what it is. Tell us what you're up to. Tell us what's next. Um, yeah, go for it. Sure. So Active was our, our second go around at our venture. You know, we wanted to move away from the insurance space um, just because it was so slow and we were kind of tired of the scene and sort of given the second opportunity, we wanted to do something that, you know, we were passionate about and we wanted to to enjoy you know the company that we were spending in so active is a platform that's sort of continuously evolving um and what it's essentially doing is trying to revolutionize the way that we measure and reward physical activity right now the the key metric used in this space for measuring and rewarding activity is steps right you'll mm -hmm. see it with vitality health you'll see it with sweat coin um you know, your 10,000 steps a day, you know, and steps are great if I love running, but what if I'm into yoga or dancing or tennis or swimming, you know, I'm not being rewarded for any of that activity. And we wanted to find a way to provide instant gratification for any and every type of physical activity. You know, that was our initial goal is that there has to be something better to inspire people to get moving because this obesity issue is, is massive and this whole health implications of inactivity. We want to try and make an impact. So we created something called activity zones. So an activity zone is everything from a gym to a sports club to a yoga or dance studio, pretty much anything you can imagine. 
we have the GPS coordinates of every activity zone in Europe and the US, and we're working on everything else. But right now we have Europe and the US. Um, and using location-based tracking on people's phones, we can identify and reward people when they're in an activity zone for 30 minutes or more. So all you need to do is completely passively walk into a gym for half an hour or walk into a yoga class or a five-side football facility or a park or a cycling track. And we start to reward you with activity coins, which is our, our in-app currency. Now, our rewards right now are all to do with fashion. And we chose fashion for a number of reasons. Um, number one, it's a juicy carrot to get people moving, you know. So at the very top line level, the more physically active you are, the more discounts you unlock from, from major brands. And um, fashion is very used to giving out discounts. That was the, the number one. Like there's continuously discounted items in the fashion mm. space because they have so much surplus stock and it's always changing. You know, there's four seasons a year. They're constantly trying to, to churn this, this stock level. So discounts are something they're already very comfortable with. And, you know, there's always new products coming into this discount space. So it's something that makes sense. Um, and we also looked at the space as a, as a sort of an entrepreneurial mindset of, you know, who are making exits in this space um, and who's buying these sort of these fitness apps. And the trend is all about major fashion brands buying fitness apps. So it might be Adidas, it might be Nike, it might be Under Armour. Under Armour has spent 500 million pounds in two years buying up fitness apps. Um, and they do it because of the insights, mm. right? The insights into the customers that they're getting from these fitness lifestyles. So what these zones give us is an unbelievable insight into the lifestyle choices of a customer mm. you know i know if you're going to the gym two or more times a week i know if you're a yoga junkie or if you're into swimming or whatever it might be so i can bring twenty thousand people who are doing yoga two or more times a week to lululemon and they can market directly to you on our platform mm -hmm. with one push notification saying hey we love that you've done um a couple of yoga, yoga sessions this week here's 20 percent off our latest leggings something like that you know and that's the type of insight that yes, is providing a data set that is attractive for an exit, but also provides an immediate value proposition for the fashion brand to advertise extremely effectively to you. You know, if I'm on, if I'm advertising on Facebook, you know, I might have liked Eminem in 2011 and I come up as an Eminem yeah. fan and I'm advertised Eminem products. You know, these are live actionable insights that we're able to provide and um, it, it creates a very effective marketing platform. Um, we're also working on a, a social angle as well, where we're transforming um, the the way that influencers market on Instagram in a similar kind of insight way with a data play on the back end. But that's a more conceptual phase that we're that we're working on and just seeing if there's potential for. But it's a uh, it's we're looking to get the MVP out this year. Um, it's a very complicated build. You know, whenever you're innovating, there's a lot of R and D, there's a lot of trial for error, and you know we're not using a we haven't we're not using funds that we've raised for you know these are profits coming out of style of tech that we're using to build this platform mm -hmm. so it's um we're having to to take our time with it and we're having to be very specific about where we invest and when we invest the profits of the business um which is good it's a whole new challenge for mm -hmm. us so it's been it's been a challenge in terms of allocating resources you know because every time we we build 
active, we're turning down an opportunity to build an external project, which brings money into the business, you know, so it's not only we're paying to develop, um, you know, certain aspects of, of active, but we're also foregoing capital from an external client, you know, so our development team is about 10 or 12 men strong right now, ranging from our CTO with 30 years experience all the way through to um, front and back end developers with sort of two or three and sort of everything in the middle. Um, so allocating those resources is something that is is our day to day challenge or a month by month challenge um, and how we can be effective on both fronts, you know. Charlie, this has been very enjoyable podcast, I must say. I thoroughly enjoyed all of this. From Thank you so much. to active. Um, what we do at the end of these is that we hand back over to you to um, just give us the one-liner um, for Stylif or Active or both um, and just let us know if you've got any asks of our audience to close us out. Fantastic. Um, so the one-liner for me would be if you are looking to build uh, a web or mobile app, then you know it is really worth us having a chat. We've worked with a whole bunch of the, the HS cohorts so far and helping them bring their visions to life. Um, and it's, it's something that we really enjoy doing, you know, trying to help founders bring something into the space that can make a difference. Um, so if you are in that space then absolutely reach out, um, the best place to find me is on my email, which is charlie.regis, that's R-E-G-I-S at stylif, that's S-T-Y-L-I-F-F for freddy.com. Um, and the other thing I would say is that we're looking for fitness influencers for active right now. So if anybody is a fitness influencer and is interested in being an ambassador, um, then I would love to have a chat with you and sort of learn how we can utilize your audience to benefit each other, um, in this space.